Season 2 of Embrace Everything, The World of Gustav Mahler was made possible by a generous grant from the Kaplan Foundation. You can find a complete list of pieces and performers featured in this episode on our website, theworldofgustavmahler.org. Please follow us on X at World of Mahler and on Facebook and Instagram at The World of Gustav Mahler. Gustav Mahler told his fellow composer Sibelius that a symphony must be like the world. It must embrace everything. And that's where we get the title of our series. We're going to explore Mahler's musical embrace. Mahler lived from 1860 to 1911, and his symphonies were not understood during his own lifetime. He was better known as one of the greatest conductors of his era, commanding orchestras in Vienna and New York. About his music, Mahler famously said, my time will come. He was correct. His nine symphonies are now staples of the classical music repertoire. I'm Aaron Cohen, and in season two of Embrace Everything, our focus is going to be Mahler's gargantuan second symphony. There are five episodes this season, one for each movement of the symphony. In his early symphonies, Mahler often had a storyline in mind, and the second symphony has a powerful narrative arc. For that reason, I'd recommend you listen to the segments in order if you can. We'll kick things off by recalling the last movement of Mahler's first symphony, which ends with the death of a hero who's been abandoned. Mahler said his second symphony grew directly out of the first. And perhaps the connection between these symphonies isn't surprising because during the year 1888, he was writing both of them at the same time. Mahler was a young man of 27 at that time, and he'd been surrounded by death his entire life. Of his 13 siblings, six of his brothers passed away before he was 20. Shortly after drafting the first movement of his second symphony, both his parents died and one of his sisters. Mahler's second has come to be known as the Resurrection Symphony, which is not a title Mahler gave it. But death and what comes after is a central focus of the work. Here's how it begins. said this. The first movement depicts the titanic struggles of a mighty being still caught in the toils of this world, grappling with life and with the fate to which he must succumb, his death. We've met this mighty being before. It may interest you to know that it's the hero of my D major symphony, my first symphony, who's being born to his grave his life being reflected as in a clear mirror from a point of vantage. 
much of the first movement of the Second Symphony is a giant funeral march. Music professor Marilyn McCoy of Columbia University. This funeral march is furious. It's in a rage. It is angry. And it's hard to think of many funeral marches that have that anger. Someone shaking their fist at death. The tragedy and finality of death. In between the fury, there are these wonderful moments when it kind of opens out into, you know, kind of this very sort of heavenly sphere. He was the kind of person who was interested in experiencing the highest highs and the lowest lows. You know, why bother otherwise? And the first movement is really interesting in the way that it mixes these two things. In these heavenly moments, Mahler foreshadows the coming resurrection. That turns out to be one of the big ideas of the whole symphony. That resurrection is foreshadowed in every one of the movements in some way. In the first movement, these heavenly moments won't last. I really see it more as sort of two kinds of music at war with each other. maximized his sonic resources to paint this picture of death and resurrection using a huge orchestra of around 120 musicians, one of the largest for the concert hall up to that point. Conductor Kent Nagano. A vast palette of color, unbelievable complex possibility of color through this exceptionally large orchestra. A larger orchestra means Mahler can take you more places musically. This very large dimension, it becomes something that sort of transcends a normal sense of an episode, and it really launches itself more into an experience, into the realms of a, a life experience, to experience the symphony rather than to listen to a symphony. Mahler gives us a few more details. We stand by the coffin of a well-loved person. His life, struggles, passions and aspirations once more, for the last time, pass before our mind's eye. That well-loved person is likely Mahler himself. During the same year he wrote the first movement, he had a vision of his own funeral. And now, in this moment of gravity and of emotion, which convulses our deepest being, when we lay aside like a covering everything that from day to day perplexes us and drags us down, our heart is gripped by a dreadfully serious voice 
which always passes us by in the deafening bustle of daily life. That voice asks the questions that define the symphony. What now? What is this life and this death? Do we have an existence beyond it? We return to thoughts of the resurrection. The resurrection music doesn't always come back in the same form, but it does always have the same feeling. Marilyn McCoy. The heavens open up and the air clears and suddenly the violins are playing way up high and it's incredible. And they are mountaintop experiences in music. In the draft version of the score, Mahler marked this passage Marischstille, which means calm sea. Marischstille could be a reference to several things. Goethe wrote a famous poem called Marischstille and Goethe was one of Mahler's favorite authors. Several composers wrote entire pieces based on that poem, including Beethoven and Schubert. But the Calm Sea and Prosperous Voyage Overture by Felix Mendelssohn, also based on the poem, isn't too far removed from what Mahler wrote. Here's what it sounds like. For more background, I spoke to Joanna Neely, a professor of German at Oxford University. So the first line of a Goethe poem says, a deep stillness rules in the waters, and there is no movement at all in the sea. Goethe's poem is very short, only eight lines, and goes from a sense of calm to a sense of terror, a feeling of being stranded. Mendelssohn focuses on the calm in his music, as does Mahler. Another possibility is that Marischstille is referencing a comment by the philosopher Schopenhauer. Schopenhauer talks about Marischstille des Gemüts, so the sea stillness of spirit, a deep sea calm of the spirit. The quote comes from Schopenhauer's book, The World as Will and Representation, where he suggests everything in life is determined by the will, and we endlessly strive to satisfy this will. But we can overcome this condition of endless struggle and striving, which is our fate, but we can overcome it in moments of aesthetic perception as we lose ourselves in contemplation of something other, something which might bring disinterested pleasure that's not serving this will. Schopenhauer calls it a peacefulness higher than all reason. And this idea ties in with Mahler's conception of the first movement, a frustrated struggle about human suffering and death. If we remove ourselves from human concerns, the frustrations disappear, and we are instead overwhelmed by the wonder and beauty of the world. In a sense, in Schopenhauer's case, 
Mirestille also means the death of the individual or the end of individual striving, but it's it's a it's a positive thing because it brings peace and it overcomes the the will, this kind of irrational force that drives us through life. Marilyn McCoy. Sooner or later, especially in the first movement, the anger, the march starts to bleed back in and eventually takes over. And so, like, that's kind of the fight of the symphony. You know, it's like, who's going to win, the raging hero or the hero that has conquered and that's going to live forever? A number of things are kind of working in conglomeration in this symphony. And so one of them is the idea of transformation. Mahler explores the idea of physical and spiritual transformation by mirroring it with musical transformations. So no matter how new and different something sounds, you've actually heard it before. Nature is for us the model in this realm. Just as in nature, the entire universe has developed from a primeval cell, from plants, from animals and men, beyond to God the supreme being. So also in music, should a larger structure develop from a single motive in which is contained the germ of everything that is yet to be. Let's hear how this works. All of the music in the first movement can be traced back to the opening moments of the symphony. just heard a bunch of short melodic shapes strung together. For instance, this very quick falling motif. This motif, turned upside down and repeated a few times, becomes this. So what started as this has become this. And if you listen to where Mahler goes next, He changes the rhythm, creating triplets. These triplets get plugged in all over the place. Which leads us back to this. Coupled with triplets. Ending with the upside-down version. Several bars later, Mahler uses all of these at the same time. That kind of evolution, um, that transformation continues throughout the movement. So Mahler doesn't compose a symphony. He grows a symphony. It's a living thing, this symphony. Right? It's very unusual. Mahler wasn't the first to do this kind of thing, but I think he was in some ways the most thorough. This living symphony is a mirror of Mahler's experiences. My two symphonies contain the inner aspect of my whole life. I've written into them everything that I've experienced and endured. Truth and poetry in music, 
Truth and Poetry is the name of Goethe's autobiography. By calling his symphonies Truth and Poetry and Music, Mahler is identifying his compositions as musical autobiographies. To understand these works properly would be to see my life transparently revealed in them. Creativity and experience are so intimately linked for me that if my existence were simply to run on as peacefully as a meadow brook, I don't think that I'd ever again be able to write anything worthwhile. Mahler's life definitely did not run on as peacefully as a meadow brook. There were many tragedies and triumphs, climaxes of all kinds. And Mahler mirrors this by constantly building towards climaxes in the music. Climaxes usually lead to some kind of release. And a couple of these climaxes don't lead to anything. They lead to, you know, kind of what you could call a dissolution. It doesn't resolve anywhere. It doesn't arrive anywhere. It just sort of falls apart. It dies. But even as everything dies, the march continues. Matthew McDonald, principal bass of the Berlin Philharmonic. It is quite unusual to have basses exposed for such a long time. Usually it's kind of, they'll show that dark part of the house for a few bars and then move away. But he really stays below the earth. Even here, Mahler pushes the orchestral limits. The lowest note on a double bass is an E. This part begins on an E-flat. So technically, he's beginning lower than you can go. A typical double bass has four strings. To play this part, you need a five-string double bass or a four-string with an extension on the lowest string. But he was really the first one to exploit that extra low E-flat. Throughout this movement, in all registers of the orchestra, the march dominates. Marilyn McCoy. Mahler is famous for using marches everywhere, and people speculate, and it's probably true, that he grew up across the square from a camp where soldiers were stationed. And so he heard marches and fanfares all of the time. In addition to his real-life experience, Mahler was also influenced by his compositional heroes. A big influence was Beethoven's masterful funeral march from the Eroica. That was like the biggest, fanciest funeral march that anyone had ever written. Beethoven's Third Symphony, the Eroica, premiered in 1805, death marching forward in an earlier era. Mahler takes that funeral march idea and intensifies every part of it. The biggest climax is approaching. Austin Howell, 
principal tuba of the Montreal Symphony Orchestra. This is one of the moments that we just wait for, and the brass is so often, uh, you know, the conductors are having to dial us back. It's a little bit like being on a racetrack in a Ferrari. All you have to do is hit the gas pedal, and, it, and that's what you want to do. But this moment in the first moment is when you get to really hit the gas pedal. Mahler's anger unleashed. Bruno Walter said that Mahler needed no mediator with God. He could take his frustrations right to the top. Mahler wanted to know how a loving God can be so indifferent to human suffering. Is there any point to life if we're all going to die anyway? Why must it be this way? Is all this only a confused dream? Or do life and this death have a meaning? A burning pain crystallizes. Mahler's questions tear at the very fabric of existence. What did you live for? Why did you suffer? Is it all only a vast, terrifying joke? The questions Mahler has brought up are important, eternally important. We have to answer these questions somehow if we are to go on living. Indeed, even if we are only to go on dying. The person in whose life this call has resounded, even if it was only once, must give an answer. And it's this answer I give in the last movement. But in this movement, Mahler's frustrations are overwhelming. Michael Sachs principal trumpet of the Cleveland Orchestra. And it's typical Mahler. I mean, he just builds it up and he just holds you there. You know, it's like he's grabbing you by the throat and then he finally, like, lets you go. For the remainder of the first movement, the march prevails. Death will not be stopped. Notice the ominous bass part here. And notice how the bass part continues, even as the music becomes more heavenly up top. Carter Bray, principal cello of the New York Philharmonic. That's a mark of a very sophisticated contrapuntal writer. I could also point you to certain passages in Mozart's operatic scores where that takes place. For example, uh, in Così fan tutte, there's a famous quintet in the first act where the two pairs of lovers are saying goodbye to each other, and it's indescribably beautiful and tender and soaring. And 
underneath those four vocal lines is a fifth, and it's Don Alfonso. He's a bass, and he is mocking them. Mozart mocks his own facility for writing absolutely gorgeous music. Mahler, I notice, does very much the same thing. He uses the bass line not only to propel the music forward in a strictly compositional sense, but it also provides a kind of subtext or subconscious reminder for the listener that that fateful music is still going on underneath the texture. Even with this, these dramatic mood shifts aren't easy. Michael Sachs. So as a trumpet player, it's particularly uh, challenging to play Mahler's music because you can be playing some very strong, very heroic music, very intense music, and then all of a sudden have to flip around within about 15 seconds and play just a beautiful floating, you know, espressivo sort of singing moment. Beautiful music brings forth another Marischtella calm sea passage. Schopenhauer's peacefulness higher than all reason. This time, the contemplation of beauty brings forth pure love. Carter Bray. It's an unapologetic sensuality to the writing. And it's, man, he certainly has me convinced. (laughs) The music melts in our ears. As always in this movement, the march returns. As Mahler closes in on the end of the movement, the music takes on an ominous tone. Death is waiting in the wings. Carter Bray. It's very dark music, and it's very, it's very heavy music. Um, and it follows conventions of funeral music. It descends scale-wise. Uh, it doesn't cover a, a wide intervallic range, but it has this heavy tread to it. Um, Bach also uh, would use descending scale music like that. 
in the Mass in B minor and uh, in the uh, Passions to describe and to express heavy sorrow. Here's the Mass in B minor, which Bach completed in 1749. It's a very old, very well-honored compositional convention. Mahler originally named this movement Totenfire, which translates as funeral rites, inspired by the title of a book by Adam Mickiewicz, the national poet of Poland. He wasn't trying to musically imitate the plot, but the subject matter resonated, a story of transformation with an angry questioning of God about human suffering and death. As the movement draws to a close, there's a sense of resignation. Marilyn McCoy. It's the only time that I can hear them dragging an unbelievably heavy coffin down some path somewhere. And that's where the, the anger, you still hear that in the background, but it's, it's in check. Mahler spins out the feeling of dread suspending listeners in a sense of urgent sadness. But that's also, it's a typical Mahlerian thing, like in Mahler's really beautiful movements. You know, they're so beautiful that he doesn't want them to end. And in this case, he wants to hold on to life at all costs. It's like someone who refuses to let go. Refuses to let go. The end is near. Caroline Kita, a professor of German and comparative literature at Washington University in St. Louis. When I listen to it, I hear a sense of powerlessness. This frustration, I feel like, is the really motivating feeling behind the first movement. Mahler's protege, Bruno Walter, called the first movement funeral music born of world suffering. We stand by helplessly while the suffering continues. As the music comes to a close, some commentators have suggested that what we hear is a casket being dramatically lowered into the ground. And death has won. At least for now.